We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. We have one section, but it's a doozy. It's a long one. And it kind of covers a lot of different important things. Um, the, the lesson manual kind of divides it up into different sections. I'm looking at the Sunday school manual. It divides it up into Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. Um, we don't need to fear the second coming. Stand in holy places and be not moved. And basically, it's divided them up into th those three sections. And really, this is the Lord speaking to them a, a lot about the second coming and kind of telling them, you know, here's what my role is with the Father, and here's what is expected of you. And the people that will fear the second coming happening are those that aren't prepared or who aren't doing what they know they're supposed to do. The, the stand in holy places has always been... I don't know, something to me that, that's resonated a lot because I think the obvious thing is that means to go to church, go to the temple, go to places that are holy, right? And we talk about God. But as you get older, I think you start to realize that it's more than that. It's more than just these specific locations, that it's also like, where is your mind? Where are your actions? Why the the frame of mind that you're in are you doing this because you know you're supposed to i mean even going to church could be not necessarily doing it in a holy way if you're just like oh, i'm here because i have to be just like going to work you could still be in a holy place if you're at work as long as in your mind you keep that you know prayer going and then i always think about the prophets and stuff before there were temples or before in the Old Testament and stuff like that, where would they go when they needed to become closer to God, when they needed to get away from the influences of the world? And they would all, often go to mountaintops. You know, you hear about Nephi going to the top of the mountain. You hear about Moses going to Mount Sinai. Like, there was always this removal from the rest and kind of putting yourself apart from everybody to find some seclusion, some solace, some peace. And... I don't, I don't necessarily think that that had to have been a mountaintop. I think that was more symbolic than anything else. But when, it, when we're advised to stand in holy places, I think what it means is sometimes that's a physical thing. Sometimes you need to physically stand in a holy place, uh, be in place where you can, it's dedicated to the communion with God. But it also can mean keep your mind clean, keep your home clean have your home be a place of refuge for uh, from the storm of the world and a place where the spirit can be maybe turn off some distractions every once in a while and just be together as a group you know you don't always need to have entertainment you don't always need to be consuming something 
Sometimes it's just let's let's look at each other and talk. Even that kind of simplicity can separate yourself from distractions and put you in a holy place. So I think um, when it says and be not moved, it doesn't mean that you always have to be like a monk in a monastery. But I think what it means is you be the one in charge in in the things that are acted upon and things that act. You be the one in charge of your your state. Don't don't allow outside things to make you not have control over whether you can be holy or not. You have the control whether you're going to be part of a group of people, if you're going to allow yourself to be distracted for a while, or when you need it, can you say to yourself, now I, I need some holy time. I need to take time to be holy. Just all those things kind of come to mind when I hear those phrases. Yeah, I think um, any place where we go to do holy things, like a temple, home, you know, church, those kind of things, it's kind of a place where you, especially the temple, I think about that, it's, it's a place where you you stop thinking about the day-to-day -day things and you think about the larger things, the, the overarching story, the purpose of why we're here. And I think for us it's very easy to always be concerned with the immediate hunger, thirst, shelter, those kind of things. But I think what the Lord, in a lot of his parables, they, he uses the immediate need to explain eternal needs or eternal goals. And the temple is where we go to make long-term investments, in a way. That's maybe a bad example. But we make, we're making a long-term investment. Now, by doing that and, and put, fixing in our mind, my, our long-term goal is to make it back to our Heavenly Father, to be together with our families, you know, those kind of things. In order to do that, I have to go back home and make everyday decisions. And every day those decisions will accumulate to help me reach these goals, right? That's kind of a weird practical way of thinking about it. But I, when I think about people that go up on the mountaintop like Nephi or Noah, you know, or Moses, right? Abraham, you know, all these individuals. It's almost like you're taking a break from the everyday concerns and thinking about the eternal concerns, like things like, where are we headed? What are we doing after this life? You know, what's the purpose of being here? Should I be taking my family to to a promised land? You know, how do I find out about the Lord of my ancestors? You know, and those kind of things. I thought it was interesting that in verse 45, there's uh, three, five, six, seven, seven times that the word hearts is used. The first one in verse six, where it says. Uh, hear my voice while it is called today, and harden not your hearts. You know, harden not your hearts is one we've heard a lot. In 26, where it warns that men's hearts will fail them. 29 is, and they turn their hearts from me. 33, yet men will harden their hearts against me. 55, and and they and he shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men when Satan is bound. Right? And with one heart and one mind, for 65. Gather up your riches that you may purchase an inheritance. You know? And so sometimes we think that religion or God is interested in giving us commandments that control our actions. You know, 
But you can see that as Jesus teaches, he's teaching more that these things have more to do with our hearts. And in this example, you know, he's kind of giving us a blueprint of what the last days will look like. You know, it's going to look a lot like this. There's going to be death and suffering. There's going to be people that say, don't worry about it. There's going to, you know, and men's hearts will fail them. But then as he speaks to the church, he says, you know, harden not your hearts. Listen to my advice, you know. So as much as often the, the any scripture that speaks about the second coming will, of course, be full of warnings and, 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 and bad things that are happening, calamities, you know. But also we tend to just see those as opposed to seeing all the accompanying scriptures that also tell us how to prepare, how to be of good cheer, how, you know, how the end will come, like you will be happy, you'll have peace, you know, those kind of things. Before I always thought, you know, that second coming was doom and gloom, it was kind of off-putting. And more, the more I read and the more I try to look at all, everything the Lord is saying in a section of our verse, it's, uh, it's no wonder why President Nelson is so optimistic in all of his messages, you know, that, uh, and I think where we can despair is if we haven't developed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are reading the scriptures or listening to church conference or listening to Sunday school as we are just reading articles or happenings in some sort of religious news outlet, oh, things are getting bad. But I think once we, for ourselves, develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, we will be able to see that he's very much interested in our well-being. He's very much invested. Like, I don't know, the fact that he, the, the, this lesson does a great job about pointing out that he's our advocate. What does an advocate do? You know, how is he an advocate? You know, and, and why is that important? Along those lines, like, he, we've, we've heard him said, we've heard him described as being a mediator. And in this one, he's, it's a different word because a mediator for me is like, I, I work between you and the father to help you understand the father and the father to understand you. Right. It's kind of like, I'm just a middleman to help everyone understand what's going on. And especially for us, because Heavenly Father does get us, but to kind of, we, we pray to the Father in his name, you know, things like that. But the word advocate is a bit different. And I think it has to do with, it's almost like a defender, you know, someone who's going to say, I not only know this person, but I want to fight for this person. Not fighting against the Father, but fighting for us. It's not a zero-sum game where the Father loses or we lose. Like, it, everyone should win in the end. But his point is to basically say, I know where this person comes from. I know what their struggles have been. I know what they have experienced and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And this is why I think that they should still inherit the kingdom of God. In the end, he's going to be our advocate. And I think that, that the fact that he has done the action of the atonement, the fact that he's experienced what true pain and sorrow is like, and ours specifically, 
It makes him the only person who can possibly defend us in these situations, who can possibly speak to that. I know what this person's been through. Um, I might have an idea of what it's like for someone else. I might kind of get a gist for someone else's life experience from hearing them speak. Maybe I've been through something similar, but I'm not them. And I don't know. I haven't felt their feelings. And he has felt ours. And that's where the incredible gift and miracle of the atonement is really the most valuable is he he does understand us and can advocate for us better than anyone else possibly could. Well, it's it's there in um, in verse four and five. Yeah. Where he says, "Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, and the blood of him whom thou gavest that thy thyself may be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name." that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. And so he's kind of saying this role of advocate means that the Father will extend mercy, not because you're great, but because you're doing the best you can to believe on my name and believe on me. And because I went and I suffered all these things, who didn't, or Christ went and suffered all these things, whom didn't have to, whom committed no wrong. And for that, you know, mercy can be extended. It's it's really interesting because he then tells us, you know, he tells the church, listen to me now, you know, in six, hear my voice. Uh, and then in eight, and, and he says, it's kind of like, you should hear my voice. I'm the one that I came and no one received me. But those who receive me, I give power to do many miracles and becomes the sons of God, even unto them that believe on my name, give out power to obtain eternal life. So in this method, he's explaining that when he literally says, I am the way. And and that's the thing, when you look at the, the plan of salvation from the beginning, it was known, we need a place where we can learn good from evil for ourselves and exercise our agency. And knowing that we will the only way to learn good is to do bad, and the only way to know bad is to know good. You know, you need both. But mistakes are going to be made, and that these mistakes have eternal consequences and change the character of our nation, nature. And as we make bad mistakes, we change our nature to the point where we will no longer want good things. We can become warped and become fallen and become like the natural man, lusting after bad things, not caring about innocence, not caring about justice, and just taking advantage and murdering and becoming bloodthirsty as we've seen in the scriptures, right? Right. But likewise, anyone that's willing to follow good principles, these commandments, and develop good habits, can change their heart, can have a changing of heart, and can let go of bad habits and gain new ones. And it's kind of like you're here to feel what that feels like, and then continue on deciding do you want to follow this path or do you want to follow this path? That's where it says in the Book of Mormon, it says men are free. They're free to drink damnation unto themselves as they want, you know. You're free because literally we have our agency. And that's what Christ is asking us is, can you show some discipline? Can you show some self-control? Can you stop looking at all the things you can't do and just work on what you should be doing? And once you master that, you'll realize you will become free. 
because you'll be given more and more and more. And the gospel is the path to the greatest freedom. You know, where sin appears so free at first, but then it becomes a path to a bondage. Today I had like this weird aha moment sitting in Sunday school where it was like it's kind of like how the lesson's talking about how Christ is the advocate. You know, it's trying to really let us know he's the advocate. What does that mean? And then, you know, and I think it's verse three or four. And I was thinking, okay, so we think there's two opposing ideologies in religion, like we're saved by grace or we're saved by works. You know? And I think it's one on top of the other that works allows us to be make covenants with Christ. Our works are keeping the commandments, our actions. And then Christ is saved because he's perfect and he can redeem us. He can therefore not like the advocate, not for their sakes, but for my sake, will you save them, Father? You know? And that's grace. And that aspect we have nothing to do with. There's nothing we do about that. That's all between Jesus Christ and his Father and the suffering and the atonement he made. Right. But for us to be able to be take upon us the name of Christ, almost like be adopted into his insurance policy, <laughs> kind of, we have to do works, you know. And that's, I think, I don't know, I'm just like, a, that's something I just, today, just hit really hit me, like, that I always thought, you do everything you can, after all you can do, he'll make up the rest, which makes sense, you know, it makes sense, right? But when you look at it, I think sometimes we think it's one or the other. When it comes to our relationship with Christ, he wants action. That's the whole parable of the ten virgins. Those that prepared themselves, those that didn't prepare them. They all wanted in, especially when they saw the bridegroom coming. These ones started to panic and say, hey, can you lend us some oil? And the other ones were like, I wish I could, but if I do, then there won't be enough. And then, you know, I can't do it at the expense of my sons. And then when I was thinking, what does all that mean? Well, it means that the building of the oil or the reserve is by keeping Christ's commandments. We develop good habits. And those good habits change our nature. And us being of a certain kind of nature or having this oil is what allows us to be in his presence, to be with him forever. And when when the and and it's funny because in the scripture it says and they were wise. It's just kind of a weird thought that wisdom in this sense means you know better and you did better. Mm-hmm. Or the other ones they knew better, but they didn't do better. They knew so it was faith without works, and the other one was faith with works, and and so they were ready. It's kind of like when you get baptized in the church, whether you're a convert or you know an eight-year-old you're given a lamp here's your lamp now are you going to fill it or are you going to be one that just leaves it empty and hopes that other people will fill it for you when you need it are you going to take action to fill your own lamp so that you're ready so the interesting thing was you know when once the bridegroom came matthew chapter 25 verse 10 and while they went and by they went to go buy oil the bridegroom came. So it's like, it's basically saying for those, and, and because this is a parable that's kind of meant for the church, 
for those that know better and don't do better, there will be an expiration on the time that you have to do better once you know. Where those that don't know better, that are members of the church, there will be a time appointed for them to know about the church, about the gospel, right? But uh, it says, you know, they went, and while they were gone, the door was shut. You know, they were going by and one of the doors. In verse 11, after came also other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Well, you might feel like people are, like the gospel is too restrictive, or the gospel is, is, you know, there's too many commandments that are restricting what you can and can't do. And you look at the examples of those ten virgins. Five of them were prepared with oil in their lamps, and the other five were not. And when they realized that they didn't have enough and they had to go get more, that's when they missed out. And it was it was that opportunity when they came back and they were like, hey, we, we were here. We're, we were just going to buy more oil that the Lord was kind of like, look, um, it's too late. What you were saying earlier about it's about action. It's about positive action. It's about not just knowing what you should do, but then doing it, too. I think that that's really an important part of that parable. I've always kind of struggled with it because I think a lot of the things in that parable were a lot more relevant to people at the time, you know, than they are like a lot of the, the symbols and stuff like that. Like I get the concept of oil in a, in a lamp and stuff, but we don't really do that much anymore. And so when you're trying to make the comparison to like, what does that mean for us today? Um, some of those symbols and, and stuff were kind of lost on us. Even the whole concept of waiting on the bridegroom and all of that, like that must've been a very, very common tradition for them. And for us, it's not. So for us, we kind of have to understand the context in order to understand the parable. But when you get down to it and you boil it down to what does this actually mean, it's it's about trying to obtain oil all the time, trying to keep your lamp full or at least be prepared so that when the time comes, you're not having to panic to, to figure out if you have enough to hold you over, you know, that you have the testimony necessary or you have the, the understanding necessary to not be afraid of the second coming when it happens. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting in verse 33, well, 32 and 33 and 34 and 35. Uh, 32, it says, but my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. But among the wicked, men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. And there shall be earthquakes, also in diverse places, and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me, and they will take up the sword against another, and they will kill one another. And now, behold, I, the Lord, have spoken these words unto my disciples, and they were troubled. And I say unto them, Be not troubled. For behold, all these things shall come to pass, that ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. You know, and, and I think if... If you think about the Lord, what he's trying to do, he's trying to tell us, do what you're supposed to do. Follow my advice, you know. <laughs> Stand in holy places, you know. And even when you're there, wicked people should lift up their voices and curse God and die. And we already know that it's, this isn't a, like a nonchalant type of thing. We've already been told previously, and the Lord has taught us that the greatest worth is the soul of a man. You know, the, in the eyes of God, 
you're all worth so much. So as concerning as it is for us, it's concerning to him as well. He, and these these prophecies aren't made so, like, I don't know. Well, anyway, and he goes to talk about the destructions and the earthquake and stuff. And then he notices, uh, as I, I've told my disciples of old, I'm telling you again, you're, you become troubled by these things. And I'm telling you, be not troubled. Because as soon, this is just as much a witness to you when you see these things, that the promises I've made will come to pass. You know? And what are those promises? Those promises are promises of the resurrection, promises of him drying every eye, every tear, of, of restoration, of justice, of the covenants we made will help us and save us and return to our Father in heaven. There's also promises of genealogy, temple promises, that those that may be in these situations that are in despair, where their hearts fail them, they're not lost, they're not uncounted, they're not required casualties for these things to happen. He knows, because he's the one that has died for it. All of this that we feel, oftentimes, when we look at the world and we feel, I have to constantly remind myself, when I, even when I watch a movie, when I see something wrong happen, that it just gets me like, I can't believe something so bad could be done. And then you follow that up with like actual history, things that have happened in history that aren't fair, that don't seem right. What we know is the Lord knows. And because these calamities happen doesn't mean he doesn't care. He has them, and he, later he tells us, yeah, I have you imprinted in the palms of my hands. I don't forget. He knows. And I think that's one of the, the things that is hard if you're not actively searching the scriptures and pursuing the gift of the Holy Ghost in your life. It can be hard to feel, when you see all these wrongs and calamities occur, it can be hard to feel like there is someone in control like some of these things will be corrected. But that's part of the lesson we are to learn. And we also, and I'm not in no way, shape, or form, am I saying that people deserve these things, because that's not for me to say. But we have been told that if we keep the commandments, we'll prosper in the end. Yeah, and I think this really goes hand in hand kind of with the context of when this revelation was given. Because in the joseph smith's revelations book uh, it talks about kind of the historical background to this it was um march 7th 1831 around there um joseph smith dictated this revelation which revelation book one titles a prophecy sometime around march the 7th of march 1831 during a period when according to joseph smith's history many false reports lies and foolish stories were published in the newspapers and circulated in every direction to prevent people from investigating the work or embracing the faith. Joseph Smith's history reported that the revelation was the joy of the saints who had to struggle against everything that prejudice and wickedness could invent. And then from the saints book, uh, just a little excerpt there, it says Brigham, Brigham, talking about Brigham Young, left Kirtland a week later as a peaceful winter settled over the small village. A few days before Christmas, however, a local newspaper published reports that government leaders in the state of South Carolina were fighting taxes on imported goods and threatening to declare independence from the United States. Some people were calling for war. As Joseph read reports of the crisis, he reflected on the wickedness and destruction of the Bible, said would precede the Savior's second coming. The whole world groaned under the bondage of sin. The Lord had told him recently, 
and God would soon visit the wicked with his wrath, rending the kingdoms of the earth and causing the heavens to tremble. If you put it in that context, number one, there's some crazy stuff going on in the country that's causing them to be a little bit concerned about what's going to be happening. We know that if this is in 1831, 30 years later, 30-something years later, the Civil War happens. It's a pretty big deal. But also, on a more personal level, the saints are being kind of targeted by their neighbors as being uh, ridiculed and persecuted and lies being told or, or misconceptions being pushed about the saints to prevent people from joining them or investigating. And when you think about what this section says, and it's speaking to those people specifically, and of course to us, but it, it was originally given to them, that must have been very comforting for them to hear. Stand in holy places. Here's what I want you to do. I'm your advocate. Don't worry. I've got your back. As long as you're doing what you need to do to be prepared, you have nothing to fear. And that must have been something that was very comforting for them, especially knowing uh, their friends, neighbors, countrymen were kind of looking at them as a bad influence on society or something that needed to be uh, pushed down. So I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting how when you look at all of the messages of positivity and of optimism that are in that are kind of embedded in this section. That's exactly what those people needed to hear at that time. Because yeah. I imagine all of, I mean, all of them were recent converts. Even Joseph Smith technically was a recent convert, you know. And so you look at that group of people who are on shaky ground that they need a strong foundation, and they they believe they have a tremendous faith to have moved all of them to Ohio. But then all this starts to happen, and they're like, gosh, what is this about? To be able to hear from the Lord, here's what I want you to do. I'm your advocate. I'm with you. You don't need to fear that this is all going to happen. We know that this, these things are prophesied in the scriptures, you know, calamities and whatnot. It's all right. Don't worry. If you do what you're supposed to do, if you stay strong and stay faithful and, and try your best, I've got your back. That must have been like, wow, okay. Then we just need to stay on the path. I think it's interesting in verse 50, uh, 51, 52, 53, 54, where he talks about the Jews and he says, and then shall the Jews look up in verse 51 and say, what are the wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? In 52, and then shall they know that I am the Lord, for I will say unto them, the wounds, these wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And I am he who is lifted up, I am Jesus Christ that was crucified, I am the Son of God. And then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king. And then shall the heathen nations be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection, and it shall be tolerable for them. And so we're seeing sometimes, you know, I, I even myself, I struggle with, Individuals I meet and see that I think if you would have had the gospel, if you would have grown up in the church, you would be awesome, you know, because you have that. Or individuals I see that have no gospel or are unable to either for political reasons, you know, or other religious reasons. And I, and I think when I look at my life and I see what joy and comfort the gospel brings me, the ability to pray or, or to just think about the Lord and, and ponder about my life and feeling the spirit and feeling guidance and comfort when I need it 
and to think that others don't have that, I think to myself, man, that doesn't seem fair, you know? Because in some parts, I sometimes think there may be others that would do even a better job than I could. Maybe I should be the one over there waiting for someone like them to come come bring me news and be a missionary to me, you know? Mm-hmm. But then I look at the Lord knows. He knows what he's done. And if we feel fortunate or undeserving, then do something about it. Go share it. Move yourself. If you feel like you're not as valiant or you feel like you're a, a spiritual mooch and you, you won the lottery of spirituality, being born in the right circumstances and places, then do something. And well, don't squander it because there are others, maybe they are in that situation because you needed to be in this situation. And this was the best way you would receive the gospel. And for them, it's going to be like in these situations where, where they'll receive it some other way and that's all they needed. Yeah, I have so many friends and acquaintances and stuff that they were born and raised in the church their whole lives and they've been to everything. They went on trek, they went on missions, they went on everything. And it wasn't until much later in life that they realized that a lot of that was just done because it was expected or a lot of that was done because people were pushing them to do it. And they started to realize, where do I stand? What do I have? What What is what is compelling me on my own? And I think that the sooner you come to that conclusion, the sooner that you come to that determination, am I doing this because other people are expecting me to? Am I doing this because it's kind of what you do at this age? Am I doing this because if I don't, my neighbor will know I didn't go to church today? Or am I doing this because I am compelled by my savior, by my testimony? And there are there are definitely things that you do because you're like, I know I'm supposed to, and I don't know, I don't have a strong, super, you know, robust testimony of it yet, but I know I'm supposed to, so I'm going to do it. But there's also a time when you kind of have to look at yourself and say, why? Why am I doing this? And unfortunately, I see so many people that are I'm close to that they have gone so long in their life without ever having that introspection that they start to realize I'm only doing this because other people made me or whatever. And they start to distance themselves from it because they're like, oh, I'm going to break the bonds of of this oppression that I've been, you know, I'm going to go become myself. And it's like, yeah, you don't have to leave to become yourself. You just have to figure out how, where does my testimony land? What is it based on? You know, is it my own experiences or am I just, like you said, a spiritual mooch? You know, at some point, you that's okay as a child, as an adolescent, you're, you're learning. You have to kind of base yourself on others. And even as an adult, there are certain things that I don't fully understand. And that I'm like, I know that person, I trust that person. And I know that they believe it and they've told me it's true. So I'm going to give it a shot. And after a while, I'm going to check back with myself and say, do I believe this is true? Am I having the same experiences? Do I have a testimony of this or do I need to keep trying? But I don't know. I just so many times I feel I've seen people in my life that have been apparently strong. But then when they have to stand on their own, they quickly kind of crumble because they, they haven't taken the time to build that testimony for themselves. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't allow other people to fill your lamp forever. At some point, you have to be the one that takes ownership for your own well-being spiritually. You have to fill your own lamp. 
it's an interesting thing to learn that by your agency, you can draw near or far from God. And it's you're not you're not passively going to be develop a relationship with your heavenly Father. You will passively, very passively, um, make a relationship with the natural man. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like a garden. If it's left alone, weeds will creep in. And it's such a silly, simple analogy, but it's true. If you don't prune. If you just look at our bodies themselves, you have to wash them. You have to cut your fingernails. You have to trim your hair. You know, there are things, and if you don't do that, it will get out of some control enough that we will impede all the other things you enjoy about your body. If you don't take care of the basic things of your body, like get enough sleep and eat food and things like this, you'll die. And that has been correlated so many times with spiritual things. You have to spiritually eat. And, and it sounds funny and it sounds like an EFY song and we all roll our eyes at whatever. But it's it's true. And and everyone is going to be tested. Everything needs to be tested. Because truth tested becomes stronger. And false things tested break and you can get rid of them. It's an okay process to test things. I have in me... I have basically three buckets. Things I am curious about, but I don't know. Things I believe because I've read them in good sources like the scriptures or I hear in conference. And things I know. And over time, I've noticed that the bucket of things I know and I believe are part of my testimony grows. And it grows from the bucket right next to it of things I believe and that I feed and I, and I just cultivate good things. And the things I don't know that worry me or cause me anxiety, that bucket becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. But the opposite can be true. If we don't exercise our faith, and the Lord even says, try me if I won't open the windows of heaven and grant you a blessing so large that you can't. You know. And we need to, well, if, if this sounds like a great promise, how do we understand this promise? What is the context? What's he talking about? You're talking about he's going to give us a house so big we can't live in it. He's going to give us a bank account so large we can't spend all the money. <laughs> or he's going to make a change in our, in our heart that when we realize a new way of looking at things, that that becomes so much more valuable than almost anything else because it becomes a part of your identity. The gospel is something that frees you. And when I hear people that leave the church and say, oh, I'm free and now I don't have guilt. And I was, I was, it was so hard being under the microscope and being judged all the time. And, I, and I'm just like, please, those are the exact reasons why I follow the gospel. It's because I don't feel judged, because I don't feel this weight of guilt, because I feel free and I feel hope. And I feel like my savior cares and is attentive and is guiding my life. And if, and it's just such a turnaround when, when, when like even in the scriptures it says, man in the last days will call evil good and good evil. The greatest part of this lesson is that phrase, man's hearts will fail them. And if we look at our current social, political, economical world climate, there's a lot of despair. There's this idea that, that the commandments are somehow restrictive, that the commandments are oppressive, that, that the church is holding you back or holding you down from 
your potential. And like you said, I think it's really that's a that's completely the opposite. The church will never force you to do anything. I have never felt forced to do anything. The prophet has never come and said, you have to do this, you have to do that. I always have the right to choose, including paying tithing, including being worthy for the temple. If I don't want to do that stuff, I don't have to. And you know what? Russell and Nelson will not even notice if I don't. I I choose to do this. So the idea that you're, I'm now somehow more free than ever before, and now I can live how I want to live, and you've always been able to live how you want to live. You, what you're doing is you're taking any accountability away, and you're saying I'm no longer accountable for anything I do. I just I just will do whatever I want, and I don't I will not subscribe to a way of life anymore. And it's like yeah, but you've always had that freedom. The difference is choosing to follow it. Um, you start to realize why those commitments are the way they are and why those recommendations are the way they are. Because if you do these things, you will avoid future problems. You will avoid future misunderstandings. If you are if you follow the law of chastity and you don't commit adultery, you'll probably have a really good relationship with your spouse. You know, <laughs> that's a direct consequence. Is it restrictive? Yes, kind of. Does it mean that you shouldn't or can't go and and just follow whatever lusts you have? Yeah, but in the end, you'll be a lot happier because you won't have all that conflict and all that tumultuous stuff going on in your life. It'll be a lot more smooth. I don't know. I just I just see so many people that, like you said, they have this feeling of I'm free now. And it's like what you've done is you've just said, I'm not going to care about consequences anymore. And I'm only going to look at the right here and right now what's in front of me and not what's to come. There's also these, what are they called? They're almost like, I don't know how to explain it, but there's these arguments out there that a lot of religion is just to motivate you either by divine punishment or divine reward. And if your actions are done by one or the other, you're equally foolish. You know, you're equally misguided. Why can't you just do it because that's the right thing? And I would say that's exactly the essence of the gospel. It's becoming. When you become the kind of person that you will do good because it's the right thing to do. And you can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego, whatever. Those three guys, you know, that said, we will not worship false idols. We will do what's right. And if he throws us in this furnace, so be it. I hope our Lord saves us. But if not, we die, you know, with honor. You know, we die with having done what's right and that's something in the gospel you know sure we don't want to go to hell sure we want to be happy in heaven and have it be nice but at some point when you're living it you realize sure i want to take in good because i want to be good because it expands my thinking it clears my mind it helps me control my emotions you know i was in we go in the pearl of your price in abraham chapter three Verse 24, 25, and 26 are really good. And it says, And then, and there stood one among them that was like unto God. And this is talking when God was dwelt in the midst of all the intelligence. And he said unto those that were with him, We will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And these meaning all these intelligences, or pre-existent us, all of us, before we came to earth, right? Verse 25, And we will prove them herewith, 
to see if they will do all things whatsoever their Lord God shall command them. And 26, and they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And then the, the Lord said, whom shall I send? And one answer, like unto the Son of Man, here am I, send me. And the other answer, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate and so forth. But that is our Savior. That's why he's the advocate. That's why he said, send me. I will go and suffer these things so then I can explain to them what, how to avoid this pain. So I can explain to them these principles and commandments. So they start seeing, you know, and, and as simple as the Mosaic law was to guide them to the gospel law. And as simple as keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't say the name of the Lord in vain. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. You know, these things. And we can, and you can break all those things down and immediately you can say, well, if you break them, nothing happens. And you can throw your psychology in there to wrap it up into whatever kind of lifestyle you think you want to live in. But ultimately, you're not gaining the greatest reward. And that is heaven being with God again. And it's not so much in his presence, but being okay being in his presence because you are like him. And that is the greatest gift that you, and understanding that these principles, how they work, that there is a true path. There is a true way. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.